Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. So for those of you who don't know, Pentecost Sunday is a day celebrated every year in the church calendar. It's the seventh Sunday after Easter, after Resurrection Sunday. It's already been seven weeks since the confetti, guys. I feel like time is flying. But what that was about was not really the confetti. It was about the resurrection of Jesus. On that day, seven weeks ago, we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. And in this this time that we've had, this gap between that day and today, in the life of the church, we remember the time that Jesus walked among, a resurrected Jesus, not yet ascended to the right hand of the Father, walked walked among his followers. He was teaching them. He was feeding them fish fresh cooked on the lakeside. He was being with them and instructing them on what was to come next. Now we remember that uh, Luke is the author, both of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Those two are meant to be one ongoing storyline. So uh, Jesus was teaching, and in Luke's second part of his writing, the book of Acts, we see how his instruction, how what he said actually did come to pass. I'm going to grab a couple of passages. Acts 1.1, Luke writes, in my former book, meaning the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So there, there were instructions, including the promise we heard in the passage Joy read today. There were promises of to come, but now it's getting really real to the point where Jesus is like, just stay put. It's almost time. It's coming. So now go to Acts 2.1. And in the day of Pentecost, they were together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit would enable them. So this is the story that we know of Pentecost. And this is the seven-week period between Resurrection Sunday and Pentecost um, Sunday that we have been focusing on stepping away from the Gospel of Luke for a moment and getting into some core identity of what it means to be the church, the church that has just been given this gift of the Holy Spirit upon her. What does it mean to live into our identity and calling as a church? We talked about living as the temple of God's presence through the Spirit with Christ as our cornerstone. I love that Lucas started us off today coming out of our cornerstone message with that song. But we're going to return now out of that series and hop back into Luke's gospel and start studying uh, and today specifically choosing a passage to honest honor this promise of the Holy Spirit that Christ said was coming. And so our passage today ended, uh, the passage was on prayer, but it ended with Jesus giving this promise. If you then 
though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I'm going to pause, and we're going to pray, and we're going to dive right in. So Holy Spirit, I honor that as we are gathered here in the name of Jesus, that you are, you are here, and we cling to that truth. Some of us are, are aware of that as we come into this sacred space where people have been worshiping you, God, for a hundred years. Some of us can feel it, others can't, but we're still here. And so, God, I pray that you would honor whatever form we have come in as an offering of just faithfulness to you and your ways. Have your way with us. Clarify my words that are on the little edge of a caffeine high and make it like work out anyway. Seriously, just work in our song, our prayers, our time together. God, have your way in us. Amen. So I mentioned this last week, but you've noticed these last six weeks in this gap between Easter and today, we've been more thematic than we usually are as a church. We're going to get back to what we usually do. We open up the text and we study straight from it. The only reason I'm not literally reading from a text is that I have to increase the font so much now not to take my glasses on and off. So I hope you'll forgive me. But these are the words of scripture, just really big on my pages. Um, so we just want to observe. So let's start with just some observations from the text we have today. Luke 11, starting in verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. We talked about discipleship recently, right, with what it looked like to be a living witness and have people see your living example. But a disciple in this context, in this culture, was anyone who had dedicated themselves to following the way of a certain teacher or philosopher or rabbi in this instance and to learn from them. But this is important to know. We don't really have discipleship relationships like this quite the same anymore. So the relationship assumed the development of a sustained commitment. So this is like you're going to do it for the long haul of the disciple to the master and to the master's particular teaching or mission. And the relationship extended to imitation of the conduct of the master as it impacted the personal life of the disciple. When I say we don't have this anymore, like we do have this language in the church. We want to be disciples of Jesus. We don't use that in like the world outside much anymore. Maybe apprentice, maybe intern or something, but like this is kind of a different relationship. One that we want to imitate now as disciples of Jesus, not just learning in head knowledge, but actually having our imitation, our imitation of the master impact our conduct. So John the Baptist also had disciples, people following his teaching, and the, it seemed to be common knowledge that John taught about prayer. And so the, here, the disciple of Jesus are hungry to learn as well. So disciples of anyone would learn not just from the person's, the rabbi's speech, but also by observing their behavior. And so we see that in a mix here. Jesus is praying. He's off doing this thing. And the disciples observe that he's living a certain way of life, hear prayer, and they observe and they must have seen something different. I mean, these people, these followers of Jesus at this point, they would have been people of prayer. They were, they were faithful Jews waiting for the promised Messiah. Like Jews are people of prayer. So it's not like they didn't know anything about prayer. I think they witnessed something in Jesus's way of being a person of prayer that made them see, gosh, I, I think we have more to learn. I want to learn more. He was just praying. And I'm hungry to like, what was that? I want some of that. Teach us about that. What was it? 
I think it feels really good to remember that Jesus is not just a teacher. Like Jesus is a liver-outer. He's a doer of the things that he was teaching about and who he still teaches about now. It's not like do as I say and not as I do. It's like, look, he's doing the thing. Now teach us. And notice as soon as they say teach us, the first thing he does is not start in with the parables. He starts by praying. Be like, here, we're going to pray. And now I'm going to teach you about that prayer we just prayed. What he teaches is what we now call the Lord's Prayer. We also may notice this one doesn't sound as familiar. The one, if you've been in church, that may have a more familiar cadence to you is rooted in the one as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. You'll notice a couple differences in the lines. You may also notice, if you look at the one recorded in Matthew, that that teaching happened within the Sermon on the Mount, so it's in a different setting as well. What gives? Why is it a little bit different? But we have to remember, Jesus ongoingly was teaching as they walked, as they went to different spaces. His teaching would come time and time again. It's a good reminder with two different recordings of the Lord's Prayer that this is not one set mantra. This is not one set exactly, this is it, that's it. Prayer is it, and this is it. It's not like that. He's teaching about prayer. We do memorize this prayer, it's true, and we do say it word for word sometimes or in our own lives, and that's beautiful, you guys, not only because it's good to be formed in our prayer with the arc of this prayer that we're gonna talk about, but also it's kinda cool if you stop and think, when we have one shared prayer like the Lord's Prayer, we're not only knitting our hearts to be formed with Christians like around the world right now that today on Pentecost Sunday, but our hearts are knit to Christians throughout time who've been praying this prayer literally for over 2,000 years in their own language. I love that. So there is something beautiful in a memorized prayer, but what we're talking about here is not about any formula. It's about the format. So what we're going to look at here is a movement of the themes, where we start, how we transition. And if you're new to the Lord's Prayer this morning, we're just going to get to the first part. We're not going to take on the whole thing, but I want to get a couple observations out focused on the first part. So, Father, let's start there. We're going to start with Father. This is a really interesting invitation by Jesus to own that relationship in the words of your own prayer life. And the reason that I say it's interesting is we see, yes, the Son speaking to the Father. We know that. But Jesus is inviting us to do the same. You hear that I have this language? You now use that language too. This is an invitation I say that. You can say that too when you pray. A really quick note on gender, you guys. Um, The role of God as father is not about gender. It's about relationship. And so that is a thing. The scripture also uh, talks about God as as a mother figure. So it's not about maleness. What it's about in this context and why we honor God as father is because it's about intimacy, trust, It's a relational metaphor that's very deep. In this Jewish culture, the father was loving, was to be depended on to meet the needs of the children, and was the one who could adopt someone into the family. So that's what, it's a relational term. And we have heard later in scripture, we have been adopted in, into sonship. Um, And that doesn't take me away as a female, right? We say sons and daughter, but if I've been promised first sonship, That means the rights in that culture. It doesn't take away my femaleness or your femaleness or anything like that. Just a note to remember. 
So the thing that's really cool about father, this concept itself was not new, God as father. It was an Old Testament concept. The first time God labeled God's self as father to the people was through Moses to Pharaoh. Exodus 4, 22 to 23. Thus says Yahweh, which is the, the like unwritable word for God, right? Um, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my people go that they may serve me. So for Israel then to call God father or acknowledge God as father was to hold on to this hope of liberty. In that case, liberty from slavery. In our case, liberty from whatever it is that is unjust or broken or anything. We cling to this liberty. Slaves were to be called sons in Exodus. And Jesus is getting us ready for the good news of this new exodus to come, freedom from bondage that he's initiating. But So the Jewish thought of God being the father, that's not new. But you guys, there's no, there's no other recorded Jewish prayer where the person addressed God as father as they prayed. The concept was there. We are your children. But like Abba, father, dad, Like that address was not common in a prayer life until Jesus started praying this way. Okay, on beyond the first word, hallowed be your name. I love that we start right away with this intimacy that would have been new. Intimacy to reverence, such reverence. These things are held together in a breath in this prayer. Hallow, there's this Greek word that means to honor, sanctify, set apart, treat with the highest respect. But since it's drawing here, referring to divine, not human action, it's not saying, let me hallow your name. It's saying, hallowed be your name. What it's saying is it's a prayer that God will act in a way that glorifies God. So what Jesus is saying in this prayer is God act to bring about your kingdom so your glory will be known. Glorify your name and your actions as only you can, God. Hallowed be your name. One of my professors, Nijay Gupta, says, I love the otherness of this word. Let us not think like they just didn't update it after King James or something. Like, let it be other. When you say it, have it be a word you don't say anywhere else. And let that remind you, like, this is our God who's kind of beyond our words. This word we don't use anywhere else. It's even your greater God than our words. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, we talk about that a lot here, so I'm not going to go deep into it. Like this, the kingdom coming is the thing that we've been praying for as the church with Christ as our cornerstone. Kingdom inbreaking. Bring your kingdom to moments here while we wait for Jesus to return and everything to be fulfilled. Bring about all that reconciliation your scripture promised. We're hungry for it. We're ready. So your kingdom come is like this big, huge, and then it's, and like, give us our daily bread. I love that transition too. Bring the whole kingdom to rightness. And we need some bread today. Like, I love it, you guys. God cares about both. Do you feel that transition? They come in the same breath. Hold both before God together. I'm going to swing back to daily bread. It's kind of fun. But today our focus, just so you know, right out of the gate, our focus is on provision. 
God as provider. And so we're going to keep on moving along, but keep an eye out for this provision theme of what God is providing. So speaking of bread, when we forward ahead to the teaching, we jump out of the prayer and we go to this little story about a neighbor that needs bread. In this scenario, you're in the learner's seat. Jesus is teaching you and me how to pray. And so you're the one who needs to go and borrow a loaf of bread from your friend at midnight. Get in the shoes of the decision to go knocking on your buddy's door, one room house, family sleeps on the floor together, they all wake up. This is not cool, and you're the one who has to do it, okay? Get in the shoes, this is you. You wake your friend because a guest showed up at your house and you are empty handed. So starting back into verse seven, suppose the one inside answers. Remember, you're the one now, super embarrassing. Suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. You're in need in this scenario on behalf of your guests. You can't fix this without help, you guys. There are no grocery stores. Your friend just showed up hungry. You cannot order in. You, you've got to do something. You can't fix it without help. This can be a little bit lost on us, so I was trying to think, you guys, you can laugh at me. I, you know sometimes I have to grab something to make it, to like grab the feeling that I have when I think about this. The laws of hospitality in the ancient uh, Middle East, they're... Um, you had to depend on other people in certain ways. You had no choice, no hotels, no phones to communicate when you were gonna get there. You, there were no options. You got there when you got there and you needed food and you needed shelter right then. And that was just the way life was then. The, expecta the expectations around, has oh my gosh, I warned about this. I'm sorry, you guys. I gotta watch the caffeine water ratio on Sundays. <laughs> the laws of hospitality there were like absolutes of social norms. They weren't suggestions of etiquette like my mom would teach me growing up, suggestions of proper etiquette. They were more like absolutes, but like not a real law. It was just like you just had to do the thing. You just, there wasn't another option. We don't like to inconvenience other people. I hear this all the time. I hate to ask for help. Like you really could use some meals delivered. I don't like asking for help. You didn't have a choice back then. You just showed up. You couldn't rent an Airbnb so that you weren't inconveniencing your sister-in-law. Like, you couldn't. You had to depend on each other in a different way. So the closest thing I could think of is this thing that my family and I called sister power. Now we call it sibling power, but because, you know, with our kids too, but it's like a real thing. Maybe you've heard of it. It was, made me smile a lot this week because when I was a senior and my younger sister was a freshman, that's the same age as our two kids now. Gigi's graduating today. And I can like picture this moment still for them because sibling power is super real. My younger sister was a freshman. Her name's Libby. She didn't have her driver's license and all I wanted in the world on Saturday morning was pancakes. I just like had to have pancakes from this certain pancake house. So I walked into her room She's sound asleep, she's an epic sleeper. Like sleep until one epic sleeper before she had kids. I walked into a room and I woke her up and I was like, Libby, I want pancakes. And she was like, go away. And I was like, no, this is serious, I want them. She's like, come back later. Ugh. You know like that guttural thing you give, I don't wanna do it in the mic, it'll be too, like, Ugh. you know, really loud. Just like, go away. And I just literally sat in her bed. I'm like, no, we have to get pancakes, get up, no. Yes, 
Ugh. And she got up. And that's like, that's the sibling power. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but like the, you can't not say yes when your sibling pulls the card of like, but you have to. And I still see it with our kids today. And it's like, I don't want to, and it doesn't matter, right? And I felt that, like, that's, if you have anything like that, our, our sibling power, you can't not. Even if it means waking up the one-room household when your friend comes in with such audacity. It's an imposition. It's like me walking into Libby's room on Saturday morning. 100% imposition. But you can't not say yes. Now, here's the part where you may think, and I certainly have thought, I think that Jesus just told me that like God thinks I'm super buggy when I pray and he hears me with like a nagging tone. Like, is that really what Jesus is saying? And listen, you guys, no, 100% not at all. Exactly the opposite. Some parables, these stories of Jesus that tell a deeper truth, those are called parables. Some parables use similarity. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And it's going to grow really, really, really big from something small. God is like an owner of a vineyard. And here's how he treats his tenants. So some are used parable. This is a different uh, uh, technique of rhetoric that is a lesser to greater. It's an intentional rhetoric that would be known in this culture that you would tell a story that basically here is saying, if a reluctant neighbor can be prevailed upon to help, how much more so can you count on help from God? who knows and wants to help what's best for his people. Like even the grumpy guy eventually gets up and responds to your request. So it's similar with the next one, right? This lesser to greater. Even you, you totally regular parent who has good days and bad, you wouldn't even give a scorpion when your kid asks for an egg. How much more will our good and wonderful God, the God who created freedom for the captives in Egypt, that father, Remember him? We're evoking that language on purpose. How much more will he answer and call the captives into freedom when you pray? So we get this feeling of like, if a grumpy friend even eventually gets up to give bread, your father in heaven's probably gonna be waiting at the door with a feast already. Like that's the difference. You're supposed to feel that difference, not put yourself, you know, it's not about, the God is so much more is what it says. Again, ask Seek, knock, that joy read. The verb tense here is a repeated, it implies repeated action. Keep it, keep it up. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. N.T. Wright observes, I love this. Jesus is encouraging a kind of holy boldness. Take that to your prayer closet. Take a holy boldness. A holy boldness, a sharp knocking on the door, an insistent asking, a search that refuses to give up. So our part in prayer is persistence, not because we're buggy, not because we need to convince God about our needs at all, but the persistence is the link to relationship, right? It's saying, like, I'm not just calling out, like, I ongoingly will talk to you, God, about my life, my needs, your kingdom, ongoingly, because this is a relationship. This is a relationship. So our role is persistence. God's part is provision. That's what this is about. So let's get back to the daily bread in the Lord's Prayer for a minute. I think this is kind of a fun fact. This word, which is translated here daily, only shows up two times in the Bible. And it's in the two Lord's Prayer renderings. 
That is the only time. Now, what that means is that scholars have to go searching around and through like the Dead Sea Scrolls and all these other ancient things. They literally go and look at shopping lists and receipts and letters of communication. They're searching for a word so that they are very precise with its meaning. And here's what we see in the use of what this word that is translated daily means outside of scripture. Um, it's a word group meaning being or substance. So daily is meant to be essential, essential bread kind of. But the uniqueness of this word uh, in the two themes, what we hear is like a sense of simplicity, but absolute dependence, like utter necessity recognizing our reliance on God, we're needy, and meeting real daily physical needs. That's like the simplicity and necessity combo, and God cares about it. So some people throughout history have been like, because this is a word not elsewhere, it means something far more spiritual, not real tangible bread. Is this physical edible bread, or is it spiritual bread? And I love this. Justo Gonzalez says this, and I agree. Is this about physical edible bread or about spiritual bread? The question itself reflects a dichotomy, meaning an either or, no other option, an either or, a dichotomy that is alien to the biblical text. Eating is a spiritual act. Discipleship is reflected in eating and sharing food. And furthermore, the ambiguity of the word translated as daily bread points to both the physical and the spiritual. And if the word is taken to mean heavenly bread, it immediately recalls the manna from the desert. So in other words, this isn't an either or, you guys. Like this word, the essentialness of this and the provision of this by God, we can't help to feel the remembrance of manna. I'll get to that in a second, but I, I love like the earthiness of this daily physical need, like I mentioned before, because God doesn't separate the spiritual from the physical needs of people. Like God is honoring both. So this is not an either or. So the story of manna in Exodus 16. So here in this, the, the divine provision for like a super physical real life need. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I've heard the complaining of the Israelites. This is after they've been free and they're in the desert. And then after a while, they're like, we think we should just go back because this is not going so well. And so God says, I've heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall have your fill of bread. And then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. So in the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, what did I do, Jeff? Do I do it this way? It's good. Okay, sorry. Um, and when the layer of dew lifted, there was a surface on the wilderness that was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? When they say, what is it? In their language, it's manna. So they like named it, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So manna points, this daily bread, manna was daily bread. Don't hoard it. It spoils if you hoard it. By the way, don't take more than you need because that would be at the cost of someone else. There was always enough for everyone, you guys. The justice in the manna story is one. I always learned about the daily part. I love the justice part. You can't hoard and there is no cost to anyone else. You only can take the part that you need. So it points on our dependence of God. No fridges, right? Daily bread. It rot if you kept it. 
and it was designed to keep the Israelites to maintain ongoing dependence and reliance in this relationship with their God. You can't go to Costco and then walk away and forget about God for long times. Like you were needing God daily. Sometimes our provision is hard to feel that same need just because our culture has some difference in it. But this imagery of not separating the physical from the spiritual with the conversation about bread, it goes beyond. The the scripture talks about bread or links it with spiritual nourishment, Old Testament banquet imagery, New Testament Eucharist imagery. God, not us, will prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies, Psalm 23. Isaiah foretells the great banquet feast that God will provide, Isaiah 25. The kingdom we just prayed for includes table fellowship. Remember, Jesus is showing us that. He's eating at table with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus called himself the bread of life. At the Lord's table, when you break this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. So this, all of this language links together to acknowledge a physical, gritty, human need and that God is the one that provides it all. And there is a spiritual link to this this language throughout scripture. But let's get to this promised provision at the end of the passage. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? 1113. Interestingly, see, we just we started our passage with the moment that the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost Sunday. We started there. These people don't yet know that that moment is coming. And this is the first time in Luke's recordings that Jesus makes this promise. Now, we know that as they've been following Jesus, they've witnessed the Spirit upon him, the Spirit with him, Jesus operating and praying in the Spirit. The Spirit has been present. But this is the first time that Luke records the concept of the Holy Spirit being given. It'll come up again later in uh, Luke 24, in Acts 1, Acts 2. We'll see it come to pass. But right here, this is the first time that this provision is promised by Jesus. So, when I think about us considering this provision, this daily bread, this prayer that gets to the hallowedness of God's name, please bring the kingdom, and we need daily bread. Like, it links all of this together. And we think, yes, that's so beautiful. But then when we think about praying this prayer, and we think about the way that the manna worked, the fact is we look around us and we're like, well, but... I see a lot of lack of provision in really unfair systemic systems that feel like really, really big. How can we be praying this prayer and not see that like the daily bread isn't getting everywhere? How do we do this? I just stopped as I was praying with God about this this morning and I was like, what's kind of cool, even grumpy guy, right? Like sometimes the provision comes through another person. God provides through others. And that's a call to all of us to participation in kingdom inbreaking moments. When we see spaces where the haves and have not lack, this prayer isn't just about us having full tummies every day. This is about us being sober-minded and alert to where there are places of inequity and being participants in those very places because the Holy Spirit with us is guiding us to see that this prayer is about intercession. Let's just pause on that a second. Because I kind of learned this prayer and I could like pray it on my own and just like pray for these things. But do you know that all of these pronouns in this prayer are corporate? Give us our bread. Forgive us as we forgive others. That's a tricky one to pray. 
but it's calling us to more, right? It's corporate. Matthew's version starts with our Father. These are corporate words. This is talking about intercession in prayer and in action. Maybe it's a prayer for a hungry friend who's been traveling. Maybe it's a prayer for cure of somebody who is ill. Whatever it is, it's reminding us that we corporately are praying for something larger, and it's under the umbrella of your kingdom come, your kingdom where that illness will not be, where those tears will not be shed, where that tummy won't be hungry anymore. Bring that kingdom and let us be people of intercession in the meantime. This is not a list of petitions. It is a single ardent call for the kingdom in which God's name is hallowed and which everyone has what they need. Justly, fairly, the provision is there. It's a prayer for kingdom inbreaking. And I believe with all of my heart that when we see the places and ache about them where we say, I see where the provision isn't there. Lord, what do we do? That's because we people, people who represent and know God, we have eternity written on our hearts. We know that's not okay. Because in our eternal future, there won't be hungry tummies, there won't be the illnesses, there won't be those things. So of course that aches our heart and takes us to our knee in a prayer that says, your kingdom come. Bring this thing. And then what does Jesus say? You'll have the Holy Spirit. And today we celebrate that that has come to pass. Over 2,000 years ago, we have the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see when that inequity is there, to give us the prompting to act on behalf of God in intercession, in prayer, in financial support, in baking some bread and taking it somewhere. Whatever it is, the Holy Spirit can prompt us in those ways so that we can respond. It's a cry for kingdom provision. And I leave us with this reminder that when it feels like too much, as it sometimes can, like the bigness is way beyond any bread you could bake and deliver to something, like when it feels that way, just remember to keep crying, your kingdom come, and remember the Holy Spirit intercedes with words beyond what we can even access. When it feels like your heart is breaking, allow the spirit to take the gap and cry out with your heart in line with the heart of God, and we can grow as people even of what the wordless prayer or prayer that is beyond our words or whatever you want to call it. The Holy Spirit is always praying this prayer that the kingdom would come, that the daily bread, both spiritual and physical, would be met, that God's restoring and recreating work would happen among the people of God. So let us be Holy Spirit-dependent people who take this provision not only of daily bread, but of the Holy Spirit, take that seriously. Be participants with that person of the Trinity as we wait for the return of our Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Jesus, uh, we need you. We need you as the cornerstone of all we do. We thank you of your promises of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that moment when that moment, that promise came true. The movement of the Spirit through the people, I mean, I just, I feel like the excitement and the confusion and the, with the wordlessness to explain the amazingness of it all would have all just culminated into something so beautiful, including Peter giving up and just getting up and preaching just weeks after he did a major mess up. God, thank you that you use us this way. 
Help us to say yes and amen to your promises, to your plans, that we may be agents of restoration with you, Holy Spirit, that we would say yes to where you guide us, and would you move in our midst and let God be known in Chicago as it is in heaven. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.